Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The ton of things that get sold as being about some shiny tech system really aren't that. They're about people and power. Follow the people, follow the power. That's always the lesson. Where we've all been Hello and welcome to It's Complicated with Tanya Gooden, the podcast that helps you untangle your relationship with your phone. This is a podcast about learning to live healthily and happily with technology and the digital world and about understanding why sometimes that's so hard to do. Because in learning how to step away from our phones more, we're actually learning how to focus more on our relationships, our work and our health, leaving us happier, healthier and with hours more time in our day. I'm your host, Tanya Gooden, author and founder of digital wellbeing movement Time to Log Off. Each week, I'll be asking a new guest what they've learned about themselves from the relationship they have with the tiny tyrant in their pocket, their smartphone. Welcome back to It's Complicated. I think this episode this week is actually the most important interview I've done to date for you. If you care about what's happening in the digital world, if you care about the contract we've all entered into when we're using social media and shiny convenience apps, if you care about who's ultimately paying the price for all of that, this interview is an absolutely must-listen. The woman I'm talking to today thinks there's a piece missing from the debate we've all been having about our relationship with the digital world, and that is the state of sweatshop labour, digital and social media sweatshop labour. We're talking about Uber drivers, Amazon warehouse workers, delivery drivers, the conditions of those who for over a decade now have been hidden working beneath what she calls the shiny app interface. So I'm talking today to Corey Crider, who is a lawyer and activist and co-founder of Foxglove, a team of lawyers technology experts and communication specialists who are challenging big tech. They're independent, they're not-for-profit. They think that big tech companies are misusing digital technology and that's harming the rest of us and they exist to fight it. So they've been fighting largely for rights for gig economy workers, aka the factory floor workers of the digital world. And 
when I was prepping for this interview with Corey, I, the thing that I kept thinking was, why don't we appear to care about them? Why don't we even think about them when we order something from Amazon, when we book an Uber, when we select our delivery order for the evening? Why are we not thinking about who is paying the price for that incredible convenience? And Corey says we should be very much caring about these exploited, underpaid, possibly migrant workers. So she says we should care about these people for the same reason we don't want to buy a T-shirt made in a sweatshop. It's just wrong that our ease of use of tech and the digital world depends ultimately on exploitation. So the most fascinating conversation I've had in a very long time with Corey about her work with Foxglove, about how she got into it. Her background is in human rights. Fascinating chat about some of the work she did before Foxglove, working in Guantanamo Bay. At the bottom, what Corey's really interested in is power. It's about power. Who has it in the 21st century? Who has it in the digital world? Do we all really understand the power balance that exists now for all of us? And spoiler, before you get to the conversation with me and Corey, it's not us as users who hold the power and it's not all those hidden workers who are providing our shiny services. So I think this conversation is absolutely fascinating. I think it is, as I said, the most important episode I've done to date. And I really hope as a result of this, it makes you all stop and think a little bit about the price we are paying for the use of all these incredible convenience services. So I'm going to sit back now and let you listen to me chatting to Corey Crider from Foxglove. Corey, hi. Hi there, Tanya. Welcome. Me. I know just how busy you are, so thank you so much for finding time for us. I've been really, really keen to chat to you for a while because I've been following your work and everything you've been doing with Foxglove. I think the main reason I really wanted to talk to you is because it struck me where I'm on the sixth series of this podcast and we've really been focusing a lot on our relationship with big tech as consumers. And it struck me looking at your work that there's this hidden story of what big tech is doing to its own employees. And it's a story that you've made part of the mission of Foxglove to highlight. And I wanted to start because I've been absolutely fascinated is not the right word, appalled, that's the right word, appalled by the story of content moderators, Facebook content moderators specifically, who've been called the, the social media factory floor workers. And I know that you are doing a lot fighting for fair treatment for them. So I, mm. I wondered if you could start because I think most of our listeners will have no idea what that this role even exists, what content moderators are, that it's not some algorithm, it's actually people. So I was wondering if you could just explain, you know, who they are and, and what they do. Sure. And I think you're right, Tanya. I think one of the ways that Google and Facebook and the other big tech companies have managed to amass such a colossal amount of power over us is a kind of trick that they play where for many, many, many years, we kind of thought that they were sort of, or people thought that they were sort of these kind of cool, independent, small, you know, garage started tech companies, right? Kind of Steve Jobs in the 1970s or whatever. Um, Silicon and, Valley and, hipsters. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, kind of man bun data hipsters who, <laughs> who basically 
made their billions and billions off the back of programming genius, right? That, you know, and, and, and the trick happens again and again, right? It's, it's, not, it's not exploitation. It's a shiny app interface between you and whatever it is that you want to do, right? It's you and the public square, so social media, or you and the food that you want to order, Deliveroo, you and the car you want to take to get somewhere, Uber. And those systems, all of them, uh, actually can't be built without humans, without human exploitation and human work. It isn't just an AI. It isn't just an algorithm. It's thousands and thousands of people. So what's a content moderator? When you and I go online, when we go on YouTube, when we go on Facebook, if you do, you're probably not on it, but I mean, but <laughs> those of us who do, when we use any of those services now that rely on millions of people to upload content, uh, then people police that content. So basically, it's the modern public square now, right? So to step back for a minute, a quarter of the planet use a Facebook-owned service basically every day. I think it's even up to a third of the planet now. And sad to say, on YouTube, on Facebook, a lot of what people post to the internet is pretty grim stuff, right? It's, it's not just bullying, although there's bullying and hate speech, there is graphic violence. There's self-harm. People have been known to commit suicide on social media. Um, there is abuse of children. There's all kinds of horrific stuff. Anything that a human does to another human or indeed to themselves, somebody has seen fit in their infinite wisdom to post to the internet for millions of people potentially to see. And I actually think that there's something in the size of the platforms that makes this happen as well, right? Because if the only imperative is to go viral, which is where we've got to, uh, then people then people put stuff on the internet to go viral. So one of the most famous ones was the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand. He live streamed his mass murder on Facebook Live. So sitting behind all of this and trying their best to keep the internet and social media to be a place where you would want to set foot, much less allow your loved ones or your children to set foot, is this class of workers called content moderators. Facebook has something like 30,000 of them. I don't know how many there are at Google. It's harder to find out. But again, I would estimate in the tens of thousands around the world. And they work all day, every day, to take hate, violence, child abuse, terrorism, self-harm, and the rest off of social media so that you and I can have a reasonably usable public square. But one of the, the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let you get a word in edgewise, is you, know, you talked about employees, but actually the other thing that big tech has done, and Facebook is absolutely terrible about this, YouTube's pretty bad too, is it doesn't actually give them the rights of employees. So it's, again, going to this myth of the shiny app interface, it is it has to have these people. They're the absolute core of Facebook's business, but it doesn't hire them. It doesn't give them proper See, I didn't realise that Yeah, until yeah. I started finding about what you were doing. I just assumed they were on the payroll. So they're freelance, yeah, are they? Or they're, contract, they're out, or? outsourced. So they're outsourced. Yeah. So they're all these kind of third-party firms that you, know, you may or may not have heard of. Like maybe you've heard of Accenture. Yeah, uh, you yeah. probably haven't heard of CPL or Covalent. I mean, one of the ones that had a shop floor expose a couple of years ago in the States was called Cognizant. And after a couple of bad media articles, they just pulled out of the business altogether, laid everybody off and shut up shop. But there are these kind of third party outsourcing firms who hire the people either on contracts or as employees. 
but basically they're, the workers are much more precarious. They, you know, they have Facebook branding. They do work for Facebook all day, every day. They're dealing with Facebook content, enforcing Facebook's rules for all of us, but they don't have Facebook rights. They don't have Facebook employment. They don't have Facebook provided psychiatric care, which of course you do need after swimming in the toxic river of the internet all day, every day. You know, so I, was, no, yeah. I was going to ask you about that because I was thinking, I, I've done a lot of work with the police and obviously when they have specialist units that deal with grooming and trying to track down paedophiles online and they have a lot of support in dealing yeah. with it because they're looking at really horrific information. It's mandatory, um, I think, for law enforcement. Yeah. There's a kind so, of ar- armada of qualified psychiatrists. No, no, no. If you're a content moderator, you get this thing called a... This is... I'm afraid you can't make this stuff up. It's a wellness coach. No. Not a doctor. Not even a psychi- uh, psychologist in, in most circumstances. A wellness coach. Somebody who their contract... Even if they were qualified, which generally speaking, they're not. Whose contract forbids them from diagnosing or treating mental health issues. And the other thing these companies done is tried to shunt all responsibility for what people engage with down onto the workers themselves. So one of the companies sent out to their global workforce of thousands of content moderators last year a piece of paper and an acknowledgement. This is Accenture that basically said, I understand that in doing this job, I'm going to engage with graphic violence and other kinds of content that risk my mental health. I understand, and it says this in black and white, I may get post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm -hmm. PTSD, as a result of this work. I will enroll in the mandatory We Care program, because that's what they call it, capital W, capital C. And But I understand that that these people aren't doctors and this may not be enough to stop me getting PTSD. That is the opposite of a company who takes responsibility of its workers. Mm. That, is a, that is a company who is trying to push the harmful side effects of the internet that we all use downhill to the, to the person at the very bottom of the totem pole. One thing that leapt out at me when you were just talking was the fact that you said 30,000 as a number and then said a third of the planet are using Facebook services. I just think they must be overwhelmed, aren't they, with the amount of content? That doesn't sound like anything like the enough people to deal with this tsunami of offensive content that's right there's absolutely nowhere near enough people to deal with the tsunami and not only that you know i mean i think that we should all care about these people for the same reason that we don't want to buy a t-shirt made in a sweatshop right because actually it's just wrong to you know it for for the public square to depend on human exploitation like this but step aside for a minute just from the perspective of the user of the service, somebody who is going online and using social media right now because that's where the news is or that's where your family is, imagine for a minute that, the, that Facebook actually had to absorb the real cost, the true cost in human and employment and labor terms of moderating its, co- its platform properly. I think you'd have a very different public square at the front end. Very, very different because it'd be very expensive and also they would probably police it quite a lot differently at that point. The other thing I would say is in terms of what gets the attention, right? Are you familiar with this thing called the oversight board that Facebook oh, set up? Oh, yes, yeah. And the real we, oversight board as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going, we did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we did some stuff <laughs> with the real oversight board. But anyway, we kind of joke about the oversight board that it's the world court of Facebook. Facebook doesn't yeah. want to have, have like real government regulations. So they're like, hey, let's throw some money at getting some Nobel Prize winners and the former prime minister of Denmark and like... Oh, yeah, and the former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rushberger, up, and, you know, they can be the kind of final court of appeal 
of decisions when somebody is upset about a Facebook decision. So, and, and you know, the amount of attention that gets thrown at this question of, you know, their first decisions, are they going to reinstate Trump on the platform is virtually endless. But each one of those decisions for which these guys get, you know, like a six figure salary for a consulting job a couple of days a week is, is the end of a chain that began somewhere with an exploited, underpaid, possibly migrant labor, possibly with PTSD, content moderator. And I think, well, hang on, if we care about it at the Supreme Court end, if we care mm-hmm. about it when Alan Rusbridger is pronouncing on it, then why don't we care about it at the mass end for the people who are doing it all day, every day? So why don't we? And how did you get involved? Was it a whistleblower? How, I mean, how did you find out about this situation that, as you say, is just not being reported on or, or discussed? I mean, there's a, you know, there is a bit of coverage now, but nothing like bit. the level there should be, clearly. Yeah, we'd read a couple of pieces. So some of those investigative, those early investigative pieces really struck my imagination, I suppose. And then sometimes it's just chance, isn't it? We were, Fox Club are a very young organization. We were set up in June of 2019. And basically within a month that we set up, an introduction was made to us of a person who was doing some work in content moderation for Facebook. And I don't want to say where they are, you know, to kind of Mm. protect their safety and confidentiality. But investigation kind of sounds like a glamorous word sounds very sexy imagine a kind of trench coat and and sunglasses or whatever but actually it's just a guy who knows a guy isn't it and you know one person led us to another person that person may have led us to some documents and and at this point we've probably spoken to i don't know between 100 and 150 people who do content moderation work or mental health support for content moderators in half a dozen countries and we realized i suppose also that there that this was a piece missing from the debate Right. That, that there's all this talk about the front end, the hate speech, you know, the addictiveness of social media, all of that stuff. But there was almost no effort to connect that debate to the debate about the conditions of work that actually produce the public square that we all use every day. And so we're hoping to fill that gap and fix it. I'm thinking about the analogy with the Industrial Revolution and the mill workers. I mean, you know, that's what we're looking at, aren't we? We're, 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 we're thinking what's happening in those mills, except we're not thinking about it. We clearly should be. So what's the latest progress? You're fighting for fair treatment for them, for safe working conditions. Where have you got to? In the... and, to try to, and to try to help them organize. So the, some of the earliest things that we did, the first people who came to us were actually former content moderators with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we helped set them up. But those are people who are not in the work anymore. A lot of people yeah. burn out, to be honest. I'm in not eight, surprised. Nine, 10 months. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then you know, let's say you're a young person. Your whole life has gone off the rails. You had this idea that you were going to get in and maybe get ahead in a kind of cool tech company. And then set, and you have no idea what you're getting into. You're swimming maybe, in a sewer. Yeah, And maybe no idea, because I think maybe, people, you know, I don't know, our understanding of mental health isn't very advanced. So maybe you don't quite realize that something about you fundamentally may be about to change by exposing yourself to this stuff day in and day out. So you're young. Maybe you want to put yourself through college. You sign up. And then suddenly after nine, ten months, you can't do it anymore. You can't take it. You can't even relate to your boyfriend or girlfriend. And you, and you leave and your whole life has gone off the rails. So we, we started helping out with those people to try to get basically compensation for what they had suffered 
But, and you know, there, in the States, there's been a class action that Facebook settled for $52 million. But when you think about how much money that Facebook itself makes. Yeah, that's nothing. $52 million yeah. is a pittance, right? It's not going to be enough to change their behavior. So after helping those, some of those former people set up with some of those cases, and we still do refer people for those kinds of actions because people deserve to be compensated. But we realized that actually what they needed wasn't just uh, that kind of a case. What they needed was a union. What they needed was to organize. And that's been true of a lot of tech workers. We've seen in the past, I'd say two to three years, a really interesting and exciting push by people at Google, by Amazon warehouse workers, by Uber drivers, lots of people who for de- you know like a decade plus have been exploited by these big tech companies are starting to find their own voice and say, hey, no, it doesn't have to be this way. Just as those factory workers in the industrial factories of 100, 120 years ago that you're talking about, just as those people also had to stop child labor, stop crazy working hours, stop unsafe factory conditions. It's very, very similar. But the Facebook workers are behind. And they're behind basically because of a culture of crazy secrecy and fear that Facebook has inculcated in its whole workforce. These guys have to, you, you've heard of NDAs, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Non disclosure agreements. The NDAs that these people are made to sign are like they work for the CIA. They're not supposed to tell their family members that they work in content moderation for Facebook. No. Really? And what's Gosh. yeah? And why? And why? Right? Like it's not like what's the what's the security? Facebook says, oh well, you know, we've got to protect you because what if somebody is upset about a content moderation decision and decides to you know I don't know come in and, and give you a hard time about it? But that's you know that's relatively fanciful. Yeah. I think the risk of that compared to the risk Very of everything slim. else is pretty low. Yeah. It's pretty slim, right? But what it, what does it really do? It makes the moderator feel a bit ashamed, actually, about what they're doing. Like somehow it's secret and a bit gross because, I mean, God knows the content is gross, as opposed to the truth, which is that they should be proud of what they're doing. Just like a, a, you know, a police officer investigating a child abuse case, as you say, and child abuse imagery online should be proud of what they're doing. They are preserving or trying to preserve the integrity of the public square for all of us. And they do it at immense personal cost. But that secrecy means they feel ashamed to talk. Stops them getting help means they don't feel clear about whether they can even talk to lawyers like us, where they have the total right to communicate in confidence with the lawyer. And it blocks worker organizing. They don't know who they can trust. They think that they'll be fired immediately. And lots of them are migrant workers, too, in somewhere like Dublin, which is Facebook's European headquarters, where there are, you know, over a thousand People come from all over the world, and they're concerned that if they lose their job, they lose their right to be in the country where they live. And it's starting their lives over again. Gosh, it really is so exploitative. Um, You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking this is, you know, it's like modern day slavery, really, isn't it? It is extremely exploitative, but it doesn't, I mean, it really doesn't have to be this way. So, I mean, this this really surprised me, but in the past mm, six months... There's been a huge migration in Dublin of content moderators out of these Facebook outsourcing firms to another social media company, TikTok, basically because TikTok is giving them employment rights. It's hiring them directly and giving them proper benefits and better pay and health care. And that and, and, you know, it could be that way. Facebook could do it. It's not like it's not like Facebook can't afford it. I, what, did I read somewhere that Mark Zuckerberg's personal wealth passed a hundred billion dollars during this pandemic? Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> I was just thinking when that's he said his personal million. Wealth. 
That's, yeah, that's probably no. the, the annual salary of the Facebook oversight board, isn't it? Oversight board, isn't it? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like I don't know, what, an hour, two? I mean, yeah. how, how many minutes yeah. does it take for Facebook to clear that? I mean, it's an absolute joke what they pay. And, and they could do better. But they don't, you know. But I think, I th- if you think about why they don't, I think it's because they have this sense that maybe it is the tip of the iceberg. And the moment that people start to ask questions about social media's sweatshop labor, which is what it really is... Uh, then they're really gonna. Then they're really gonna have a hard time. So you said a few minutes ago that foxgloves really new. You've only been going since June 2019. I must say I love your mission statement. I, I pulled out this line: "We stand up to the tech giants and governments, and stand up for a future where technology is used to benefit everyone, not just the rich and powerful." So, what made you? decide to focus in this area what's what's the kind of your backstory what's your personal background which led you to big tech and I know you've said it's not actually about tech it's about power so is it just because you know the five most powerful companies in the world four out of five of the most powerful companies in the world are tech companies now is that it that you know tech does actually equal power now that's a huge part of it, yeah. I, the, it's a huge that we sense that the nature of power and the way that power over us had totally transformed. I I actually hesitate to use this phrase because I think it's slightly naff. But I but I come from a human rights lawyer background. I'm, I, it gives a useful shorthand for people to understand what I do. But so I didn't come from tech at all. I'm not. I'm not as such actually very interested in, you know, kind of gadgets and gizmos. I did a dozen years of work with prisoners in Guantanamo and people who had been kidnapped and tortured by the CIA and people who had lost loved ones, innocent loved ones in American drone attacks in, say, Yemen or Pakistan. And two things to say about that. I mean, one is both of them involve huge power imbalances where there's somebody small somewhere who's totally powerless and a very powerful, impervious entity. I mean, here we're talking about Facebook or Google. Then it was the Defense Department or the CIA or whatever. But abusing people because they can. So there's that. But then there's a kind of more specific story as well. So I guess about six years ago, seven years ago, I started to realize that the people that we were interviewing in, say, Yemen, who had lost innocent relatives in a drone attack, lost them as a result partly of big data. So there was a very famous quote made by Michael Hayden, who was uh, previously the head of the CIA and the National Security Agency. That's the U.S.'s GCHQ. And he said, look, we kill people based on metadata. And what he meant by that was that when the United States decides to target someone in a drone attack, decides to kill someone that's outside a war zone uh, for targeting, it isn't doing so in the vast majority of instances, uh, because they know their name, it's not like this is some bad guy, we've decided to go and take that bad guy out and we're going to do it in a drone. That isn't actually the vast majority of cases. The vast majority of cases are a decision by the United States to target someone's telephone because the way that the telephone behaves and moves around and the contacts in the phone seem to the United States and its big data targeting algorithm possibly to be a militant, right? So you know a guy who knows a guy who we think is dodgy, so we reason that you're a militant as well. So and you're being you profiled can... by yeah. your phone use. Yeah, and, and yeah, they yeah. might not know your name. They're literally just targeting the phone. And, and, so, and so I guess I saw loads of mistakes where people, I mean, the most consequential decision that there is, right, whether they were going to live or die, was made as a result of this kind of 
algorithm, this faulty algorithmic targeting process, surveillance, big data surveillance being used to decide who lives or dies. And I don't know, it's something, you know how sometimes you see a problem in a different frame or a different box, and then you see it everywhere. And then we started to think about the tech companies where, you know, a lot of us were obviously worried after the Edward Snowden revelations about government spying, the NSA, GCHQ, how much information it turned out they really had on all of us. But we paused and we thought about it and we realized that actually, you know, on the other coast of the United States, we've actually given Google and Facebook an amount of data about us and power over us that honestly, most governments around the world would be jealous of yeah. uh, and that there was almost nobody doing something about that yeah. stuff. And we would never have given that to government. We would, well, we would have thought twice, wouldn't we? Um, yeah, but we, well, we I mean, didn't I think, think at yeah. all about handing all that data over to those tech companies. No, indeed. It, it, I think the Snowden, the power of the Snowden story speaks to that, doesn't it? Like when somebody, when we realize what's been taken from us without knowing, then people are actually suddenly outraged. And I also think there's a bit of a, with, with Google and Facebook, I think there's been a, a bit of a kind of boiling frog <laughs> thing, you know, where, where people don't quite realize just What's how much actually on. has been yeah. extracted from them. And you kind of get little glimmers of that, don't you, from time to time. So recently, there was this big flap over WhatsApp, where Facebook basically admitted to everybody and pushed out a notification to all of its WhatsApp users that to continue to use WhatsApp, you know, one of Facebook's umpteen bajillion properties, that, that it was, you, were, you had to agree to give over all your data to Facebook. And, you know, if you were a privacy watcher, you knew that this was in the work for years. But people were shocked about it and they were angry about it. And all of a sudden, the small nonprofit communications app called Signal was the most downloaded app in like India yeah. and all kinds of these <laughs> huge markets. So it's, it's become common to say that people don't care about their privacy. And I don't know if that's true. I just think that there's a sense of confusion and also possibly of powerlessness about it sometimes. Yeah, I, I definitely think powerlessness and ignorance. I think yeah. people don't stop to think unless there is a big press expose or unless everybody's, you know, talking about what's going on. It's, you know, blindly walking into this this situation, as you say, just like the frog suddenly waking up and thinking, oh, <laughs> what have we done? It's a bit hot in here. Yeah. yeah. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. So you talked about faulty algorithms, and actually I do know that one algorithm, one algorithm that caused a lot of pain in the UK last year that you were involved in helping overturn was the A-level and GCSE algorithm. Tell us a bit about that, because that was just, you know, horrific, what was about to happen with that. Well, if you're a if you're a student or or a parent of a mm. kid who had A levels or GCSEs last year, then you know what happened. But basically, because of COVID, people didn't sit their exams, obviously, and so the government was looking for some way to distribute everybody's results that was going to be fair. Some people basically said, "Look, the teachers know these kids. The best that we can do, even though it may lead to." a little bit of grade inflation is let the teachers assign the grades because they know the students best. That produces the most individual fairness. But it will probably because teachers, you know, trust and believe in their students. It may lead to a little bit, a one-time spike in a little bit of grade inflation. The government wasn't prepared to accept that. And so, although they didn't tell people this was their plan, it was actually their plan for months, they said, no, 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 we can't have that. We can't have any kind of great inflation during COVID, as if that was like the worst outcome in the world. Yeah. But anyway, that was their decision. God help us. Anyway, that, but that was their decision. And so they had this algorithm distribute everybody's grade on the usual curve so that there would be no great inflation. But instead of measuring individual students' performance, what the algorithm did particularly if you went to a big school, was assign you a grade based on the size of people taking the test in your school and the historical performance of your school. So if you were a kid from a a big, historically underperforming school going into like a, a really popular subject like maths or science or English, then you were very likely to have your grade knocked down one or even two levels by the algorithm. Whereas if you were a kid at a small independent school taking a small subject, like let's say one of Boris Johnson's favorites, classics, uh, <laughs> then you were then the algorithm actually didn't bite you nearly at hard, right? Actually, your teacher's view counted for way, 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 way more. So the algorithm was not just unfair in that it kind of just substituted this statistical prediction instead of students' performance, but actually it it really disadvantaged kids in state schools as well. So it was also classist. So anyway, we brought a judicial review with this on behalf of this genius kid. I was going to uh, say, for... how did you get involved? Did he approach you or did you find somebody to kind of be a test I case? Can't... How does it work? Well, it's very unusual, actually, because usually we have a, you know, we were kind of sniffing around this issue. We knew that it was probably going to be a problem, but we hadn't actually found anyone. And to our total surprise, this this genius kid comes in the door to us. I mean, Brilliant. really unusual young man, Curtis. Give him a job. A, oh my God! <laughs> I, like, I, like if he didn't have to go to uni, I absolutely would have scooped him up. I mean, he's yeah. so smart. He listen. He literally said this. He he says this on the telephone. He says, "Listen, I was just reading about this algorithm in the Times Education Supplement, as you do <laughs> when you are eighteen. Yeah. And, so, and like, I just can't see how this is compliant with the GDPR. I was like, What? Wow." Hello? He's yeah. like, I do some, I do a bit, I do a spot programming myself. And he says, look, I'm going to do fine out of this process, which indeed he did. The algorithm predicted, you know, that he would have smashed it and indeed he would have. But, you know, he basically said, look, I, I don't think this is fair. I'm at a big state school. Other people are not going to do well out of the system. And he is right, right? Several, he saw several of his fellow students on results day, totally in tears. Um, and so he, and so he just said, look, I want to bring a, I want to bring a judicial review. And so it was a kind of seven day 
war start to finish from us kind of filing the papers to the government caving and U-turning. But, you know, ultimately they substituted in the teacher's grades after all. The thing I would say about it, actually, just for, I think it's important for everybody to know this, it, especially those of your listeners who are here in the UK. The the government is currently engaged in a bit of a, a war on judicial review. It says, oh, well, it's all for lefty lawyers who are kind of exploiting the system. Huh. Know that if you were a student in this country who got knocked down by the algorithm, judicial review helped you. It's not about some some culture war issue. Actually, judicial review is just about helping make sure that government follows the law and treats people fairly. Everybody needs it. So don't let them break it. So another case I know you're involved in is the cause of Uber drivers. And am I right that there's actually been quite a big development in this case i've been discussing this with a lot of uber drivers over the last couple of weeks you know do you now know you're going to get holiday pay what what's where are we with uber drivers and getting workers rights so we're new to the uber battle and we really but we are helping the drivers so these these guys have been battling james and yasin of the app drivers and couriers union so former uber drivers are now organizing uber drivers you know, they've been battling for six years to get Uber just to treat these people as workers. Again, to go back to what the apps do, right? It's, there's, you know, disruption and innovation often means uh, getting expensive lawyers to avoid the labor and employment law protections that people fought for decades to win, right? And so Uber's wheeze, Uber's legal wheeze is a bit different from Facebook's. Uber doesn't outsource. What Uber does is it, it, it ran for many years, the legal fiction that like every individual Uber driver was a sort of artisan, like an independent contractor, and it wasn't Uber's employee. And that meant, of course, they didn't have to give them holiday. (laughs) It didn't have to give them the minimum wage because, you know, they were just independent contractors prepared to, you know, who could go and do better if they wanted to. Anyhow, so the Supreme Court, and we weren't part of this case, we're helping them after, try to enforce it. But the Supreme Court basically said, no, these people are workers. You control what they do. You control their, you know, you control their roots. You manage their performance. All this stuff. Like these people are your workers. So now they are entitled to minimum wage and holiday pay. There, there's still a battle to be fought, though. One of them is about working time. So Uber wants to say that the driver gets minimum wage from the moment you, as the passenger, close the door to the moment you, as the passenger, get out of the car when you've arrived at your destination. But if you think about it for a minute, that's a bit like, I don't know, paying the checkout person at Tesco the moment you yeah. walk up to the till Just when with someone's your at the groceries. Till. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Whereas yeah. actually the value to Uber is in, of course, having the drivers around yeah. and available Waiting to around. you. Yeah. yeah. And so the idea that they shouldn't have to pay for that, I think, is pretty unfair. So we're kind of working with the union uh, to look at that issue and also, frankly, to look at the issue of regulation because... Let's face it, with a lot of these tech companies, regulators and governments have kind of been asleep at the wheel for a very long time. I think that, you know, government is starting to move now slowly. Very slowly. Something about it, but very slowly. Anyhow, so it's actually been TFL, Transports for London's job, to do something about this for quite a while, and they haven't done it. And meanwhile, the innovation of Uber, this kind of legal wheeze that the Supreme Court just said was unlawful, has been rolled out by lots of copycat companies who also want to make a buck off exploiting people right across the transport economy. And so the thing that we're trying to help the union do, as well as kind of talking to them about this working time question, is, well, actually, isn't it TFL's job to de-Uberize the economy? 
right? Isn't it their job to make sure that the contracting companies have safe, lawful, non-exploitative contracts with the drivers? TFL's attitude for the past several years has been like, well, worker conditions aren't actually our problem. Passenger safety is our only issue. But those two things are totally related, just like the safety of a content moderator and the safety of the public square are related, right? If an Uber driver is so exploited and so underpaid that he works crazy hours and is exhausted and sleeping in his car, you know, if that's the condition of labor required for what Uber sets up, then that's actually unsafe for passengers, right? Um, so we're saying that TFL had to do something about it. And our ambition in general, I would say, it would be to roll back all of this kind of race to the bottom that Uber kicked off in the whole rideshare economy. Yeah, and it's there are so many implications, aren't there? Because, you know, the gig economy was trumpeted along with the other glossy attributes of, you know, the digital world as being a really positive thing for, you know, we could all be self-employed, we could all dip in and dip out and do, you know, provide services where we wanted to, fantastic benefits. As you say, it's been, a, workers' rights have been, you know, utterly driven to the lowest possible base, but... As users. It's amazing how you can sell precarity to people if yeah. you just put it behind a shiny app interface, right? Yeah. Um, it's, all, it's about it's all hiding new people. and exciting. Yeah. yeah. It's just about hiding people, you know, and hiding the reality of human exploitation that sits behind so much of these systems. So what do you think users, us as consumers, should do? I mean, should we not be using Uber? Uber is starting to regulate, you know, should we be actually voting with our feet and saying there are apps and services that we will not use until workers' rights are recognised and they're treated properly? That's a great question. I asked James that when I first, the first time I met him because he's such an impressive person. And I said, look, you know, should I just boycott Uber? And he said, well, no, what you should do is demand that they treat people properly because Uber, look, Uber is very sensitive to what its customers think. Because it knows that its customers, well, A, can move to some other service, and B, you know, also can exercise political power. So we have a petition that we set up basically saying, get Sadiq Khan to regulate this entity properly, get TFL to do the right thing. So you can, you can sign our petition, for one. But, you know, and you can tell every Uber driver to join a union when you get in as well. But, but I, I mean, I think... At the moment, at least, it doesn't seem to me that fleeing the service is the right idea. I think it's demanding regulators fix the problem is the right idea. I wonder why it's not happening. I wonder why consumers are not mobilising and protesting. You know, we, we see protests all the time about human rights in other areas of our lives, in other areas of the economy. You know, we're very vocal, I think, about things like disposable fashion, about, mm-hmm. you know, conditions in factories for... Why are we all, as a society, as users, not shouting more about what's going on in, in tech and the digital? It's, it's a bit of a conundrum, I think, trying to work out what's not happening. Yeah, I think that as awareness increases, actually, then I think you will see people standing up more for people like Amazon workers, content moderators, Uber drivers. I think it, it, it has been ignorance. It's an ignorance perpetuated by the tech companies themselves. Just to go back to Uber for a second, they absolutely use the power of their platforms on the mobile phone to spin their user base as well. So they did this in California. So in California, Uber and the other quote unquote gig econ- economy companies, you know, the apps, dropped fully $200 million on a single California ballot initiative called Prop 22 
that was basically them trying to win the issue that they lost in the UK Supreme Court. In other words, to say that Uber drivers and similar people are not employees and that they don't have to give them employment rights. And, and they won the ballot initiative. They so won it. I $200 mean, million dollars of lobbying. Yeah, $200 million on a yeah. single ballot initiative. I mean, that you, wow. just, just for the listeners, in case you wonder, that is way, 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 way more than ever gets spent in any UK general election because the law over here is better and it forbids it, right? But, you know, America is sadly the Wild West on those issues, and so they just dropped 200 mil. And they did it because, of course, that's the, that is the value of the exploitation to them. But one of the things they did was they just pushed out messages to everybody who has Uber, on their phone, basically saying, this is going to ruin your driver experience, it's going to push up your prices, like da 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 And that got quite a lot of people to vote the wrong way on Prop 22, and sad to say. Uh, Uber carried the day. They had so much more lobbying and communications firepower than the workers did, right? They've and got so they very just, you know, deep pockets, haven't they? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, they spend so much money on lobbying and ro- and the rotating doors. I mean, you know you know about Nick Clegg and Facebook, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, yes. Yeah. They, just, they just throw money. They just throw money at the problem. And they have thrown money uh, very successfully for 10 years into an idea that their way is inevitable. That it's their way or the highway, and that if you want to, and if you want to stand between them in exploitation, or if you want to regulate them in some way, then you're somehow killing innovation and killing the economy. Yeah, right? there's, that theme comes up a lot actually when I interview people. It's the it's the fear that we're all being luddites and we don't just get you know we're holding progress back and we don't understand technology if we question any of this. And I, I think that's quite a big fear that makes people think, oh, I, you know, I can't really say I'm not happy with this because this is the future. This is the bright, shiny future and we should all be, you know, behind it. Right. You don't want to be, I mean, you you don't want to stop progress, do you, Tanya? I mean, that's ridiculous. Exactly. I mean, it's like like what the car companies, it's like what the car companies used to say. It's like, oh no, well, if you make us do safety, you know, it's going to kill the car industry. And then, you know, then comes Volvo and the the seatbelt and actually safety becomes a whole aspect of competition for you know, for car companies. And I think that, you know, I think that these tech companies are very, they're very kind of immature in that way. And they're going to have to learn because society is catching up, or, you know, we're slowly, but we are actually getting there. And, you know, they, they're going to have to start competing for people's trust, I think. Maybe the example you gave about TikTok content moderators being treated much better than Facebook, maybe that's a kind of, you know, bright light on the horizon that they know their users, the TikTok user base, are much more switched on about this. And that they well, want to be a platform that looks responsible. Yeah. And even the kind of somnolent U.S. regulators, you know, there's been a big debate in the past couple of years. Should we break up big tech? Right. Is this just is it just too much power in the hands of one corporation, like to have so much power over, you know, a, you know, a quarter or a third of the planet's public square? And, you know, for a while that was a view held by a vocal minority but now for example lena khan one of the authors of a a couple of really important papers about antitrust you know that's competition law and the idea of potentially breaking up tech companies has just been nominated to a post in the ftc the federal trade commission so so actually those ideas which for a while were kind of fringe ideas are actually starting to move much more to the center we're not there yet but i think it's people are thinking much much more seriously about bringing these companies within the rule of law and democratic control. I just want to ask you a bit about your personal relationship with tech because you're so immersed with everything that goes on behind the scenes at all these platforms. I was wondering if there were things that you did or didn't do 
to ensure that you know your data isn't being mined, you're not being manipulated, and you're not being exploited that we could learn from. So I was wondering, do you not use WhatsApp? Are you yeah, anti-face ID? To, <laughs> I try to use I try to use Signal um, for anything that matters. I also you know I, I realize that in COVID this is a difficult thing to say, but if something is genuinely sensitive, I want to have a conversation face to face. Face to face. Yeah. But Signal, yeah. I definitely I definitely use Signal. I'm quite I mean. I'm careful about what I post, I guess. Like, there, you will not find a picture of my child on the internet. It doesn't exist, right? I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I might send it to my parents via some mes- method, but I'm not, I'm not out there, you know. And you know, I think my kid is cute, but, <laughs> but I'm conscious of not, you know, I'm conscious of not creating this trail that is potentially going to be there, out there, about her life, her face, you know. And it, you know, and in a way, that's one of the reasons. We didn't have time to talk about the class action that we supported against YouTube here in this country, but it's for data mining children under 13. And it's one of the conversations I think we can have with people, right? Even those of us who maybe aren't as careful about our personal lives as we should be are actually very concerned about what's happening to our kids. What's happening when our kid uses YouTube? What is that crazy video that YouTube just recommended? All of that stuff. And and that, I think, is a good access point to trying to persuade people that actually what's going on online isn't free that the idea that the service is free is the greatest lie at the heart of the contemporary economy and that actually something of immense value has been taken from us yeah it's interesting as you're saying that I'm thinking that's how I that was one of the big motivations for me of how I got involved in doing what I do now because as my children got older I thought this is not the world I want for them so it is an interesting angle to keep reminding yeah. people well and I were, I'm, a, I'm a parent of a daughter as well and I get I feel incredibly anxious about her personal development I guess against the backdrop of social media like I really really worry about that a huge amount and I think it's normal too so you are a non-profit so I'm just I really want to shout out to anybody who wants to support the work you're doing how can they donate Corey how can they so, support you? Because that strikes that's me as inc- something we could all do. <laughs> that's incredibly kind, Tanya. So we are we are a nonprofit. We're very small. We we doubled in size in January to four staff. Wow. So we do a lot with a little. We do a yeah. lot with. I know. I feel like a giant, right? I'm going to be taking on. <laughs> I'm going to be taking on Google any minute. But they. So our website is foxglove.org.uk, and you can sign up there to donate, and you can also sign up to hear from us regularly, which we really love when people do, because we have lots of campaigns where we're trying to enroll people. Like I say, we've got the, the petition about Uber at the moment. We're going to have another I'm on one your about big list. tech. Yeah. Oh, amazing. We're about to yeah. do another one about big tech in the NHS, right? Ah, so those of you yeah. who care about the future of the NHS, believe me, tech firms absolutely want to get in there for the long time. So any of those issues... If they're interesting to you, then please go to foxglove.org.uk and sign up to hear from us. And yes, if you've got a fiver a month, then please chip in, right? When you're this small, every fiver makes a huge difference. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, when we talk about these really huge problems, it is difficult for people to think, what can I do to make a difference? But actually supporting you and Foxglove and what you're doing actually is something really meaningful, I think, we can do. So I want to encourage everyone to do that. Yeah, and remember, think about the government in the A-level fiasco, right? Seven days start to finish of the U-turn. That shows you that when there is sufficient public outcry about these issues, actually power has to listen. (music) 
so I don't want to take up any more of your time while you're fighting these battles on our behalf. <laughs> but I've got a final three questions that I ask everybody at the end, which I just want to fire at you quickly. So I'm really fascinated to know what you're going to say to this one. Three words to sum up your relationship with tech or the digital world. <laughs> I, I, so I think the first one is obviously sceptical. Yeah, I had sceptical or cynical on my list. As I'm sure that's yeah. going to be on it. Sceptical. <laughs> then, I mean, you could say litigious, but let's go for something less fancy. Let's say pointy. Yeah. <laughs> we, we really, yeah. we want to be the kind of the, the, the tip of the spear that goes in and helps people address these issues. And then the last one I would say is democratic. We really want to say and that this is you shouldn't have to be a computer scientist to have a say in these issues right you shouldn't have to be a data scientist to have a say in these issues this is about the modern world it's about our democracies and everyone has a say in it so it's our goal to really expand access to these issues and say you don't have to be an expert to have a valid opinion about this stuff everyone needs their say i love pointy i'm going to adopt that (laughs) as one of mine (laughs) um (laughs) What do you wish you'd known? Every time I ask this, I think, gosh, what do we all wish we'd known about the digital world, the relationship we were getting into before you, you know, started working in it, before you even started using it as a user? Two things, maybe. I mean, one is I wish I could have had that Wizard of Oz moment where you pull back the curtain and you see that the whiz-bang system is actually just a guy with a hand crank much sooner. Uh, Because I think when you look at it very closely, you realize, you know, we've been talking about workers and exploitation this whole time, that a ton of things that get sold as being about some shiny tech system really aren't that. They're about people and power, you know, kind of follow the people, follow the power. That's always the lesson. And I think the other one I I probably wish I had realized is how, how... double-edged the viral imperative would turn out to be, right? I remember 10 years ago when we were all saying, oh, well, you know, maybe Facebook gave us the Arab Spring and it's going to bring democracy to the Middle East. And there was this kind of idea, right, that you could, that at least it get, suddenly some, some person from nowhere with no existing following could just throw something up and actually reach to the ear of the dictator uh, because enough people were prepared to pay attention to it and circulate it that, you know, you could get attention. And that, for a minute, that seemed like it could possibly be a democratizing force. I think that history has shown that that actually isn't quite right, that, that power has learned how to corral and exploit the war over our most precious resource, our attention. And I wish I'd had a clearer sense of that 10 years ago. I really wish we all had, yeah. And I think the tech companies are very good at PRing the whole Arab Spring me too Mm -hmm. issue aren't they and saying you see this is what folk this is what social media can give us to try and Mm. gloss over all the stuff that's going on underneath and finally what do you think you've learned about yourself from your relationship with the digital world or your smartphone (laughs) that i'm terrible at computers no (laughs) really we're just litigating (laughs) this because we're all really bad at computers no um (laughs) i think that we all get sucked in in one or another way or can if we're not mindful about it to the feedback loops and echo chambers of these online communities. So let's go to 2016, for example. I was really surprised when Trump won the election. I was honestly surprised when Brexit happened. And I think that's because I had falsely assumed that, you know, the kind of little constellation of people I listen to and I follow on Twitter or whatever is the real world. And boy, it isn't, is it? And so I guess I've learned that it's really important to 
to listen in different places and not assume that it's just going to, that the, the, you know, reliable or, you know, accurate. Right. I'm much more, I'm much more suspicious of that now. Corey, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I could talk to you for so much longer about this, but thank you. Thanks so much for being on It's Complicated. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. Lost everything you tried to see Cause we've all been swept away, yeah. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then... Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.